I'm in the midst of my second career uh, as a uh, fifth grade basketball coach, and uh, some uh, weird things happened in midlife. I came back from uh, Equatorial Guinea, and I, the first, one of the first things I told my wife is, uh, how can I be funnier in Spanish than English? It's not even my heart language. And then, so then Friday, I'm coaching basketball. And uh, one of these games we got back, we won by five points, and Jackson was like, Dad, I love you. You're such a, the best dad. And I was like, I was like, you know, if uh, I would have coached the other team, the other team would have beat us, I have to admit. I just have to. <laughs> so uh, uh, my middle son and I, we have a great relationship of uh, lots of joking around. And so where, where are you, Jackson? Good job, buddy. Good job. So uh, here we are, the Gospel of John. We've just finished the prologue, and so let me set the scene again for you, coming into verse 14. A heavenly voice has just sounded from heaven. You are my beloved Son. The Holy Spirit has descended upon Jesus like a dove, right, which is the countercultural symbol for the Roman warlike eagle, a dove. John the Baptist has held court for tens of thousands of people there in the wilderness. Mark has just alluded to the prophet Isaiah's text, which is a return of the exile text. Prepare the way of the Lord. The people of God are about to come home finally and spiritually speaking, home from exile. What's more, the angels of God have just ministered to Jesus there in the wilderness after his temptation, the same Jesus who has been called, in verse 1, the Christ, which is Greek for the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, and indeed, even the Son of God. And so the prologue of Mark raises our expectations to a feverish pitch. It can't get any higher, but then only to let the balloon completely deflate with this little line, Jesus came in to Galilee. Galilee is a terrible place to start a worldwide movement. Start in Rome. At least start in Jerusalem, right? Perhaps at the temple, Jesus, if you know your history, the center of popularity and prestige and religious power. Jesus came into Galilee. And I can't tell you how many times, being from Kansas... You know, and then the, like traveling the world, studying in Massachusetts, studying in Princeton, New Jersey, how many times I've heard after I say I'm from Kansas, people say, oh, I've driven through there. That's flyover country. Or I even heard someone in seminary said the longest day of my life was when I drove through Kansas. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I, I, do you see me here? I'm still talking to you, right? There's nothing to see in Kansas. One of the, the greatest things about Kansas, however, is on I-70, <clears throat> you know the green signs that tell you when the next cities are? There's a sign that says Salina, 17 miles. Denver, 470 miles, right? This is Galilee. This is Galilee. Remember when Peter is denying Jesus? The people come up to him and say, certainly you are one of them, for your accent betrays you. You're from that northern region full of a bunch of fishermen. 
And so we, if we are going to walk with Jesus through these eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to want to know a little something about Galilee in our imagination. We need to have an accurate picture of this countryside. Now, the province of Galilee is roughly 50 miles long, 25 miles wide. On its eastern border is the freshwater lake of Galilee, about 14 miles long and 7 miles wide. And wherever you stand on the Sea of Galilee, you can see the entire shoreline of the lake, the entire shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, which helps explain why when Jesus gets on the boat to go the other side of the river, that people can follow him, right? They're following him because they're seeing every movement as he crosses the lake in the boat. But here's also a very interesting fact. In Jesus' day, Galilee was the most densely populated province in the entire Middle East. Jesus goes where the ordinary mass of people were, which tells you something about the heart of Jesus. And it tells you something about the heart of the church. Because not everyone has a heart for the everyday, ordinary people, the playwright. George Bernard Shaw once said, I never had any feeling for the working classes except a desire to abolish them and replace them with sensible people. That wasn't Jesus. The playwright John Galsworthy once had a character say, the mob, how I loathe the mob. I hate its mean stupidity. I hate the sound of its voice, even the look on its face. That wasn't Jesus. Scottish philosopher Thomas Carlyle who studied at my alma mater, the University of Edinburgh, once declared that there are 27 million people in England, mostly all fools. Do you get that Jesus didn't feel that way and didn't think like that? That Jesus came for me in my ordinariness. And so I begin to understand that I don't have to be extraordinary for Jesus to love me. I don't have to perform so that Jesus loves me. I don't have to win friends or influence people or make lots of money or be really successful or have this wonderful, perfect family for Jesus to love me. Jesus loves me in my ordinariness. Doesn't that say something to you about the heart of Jesus? Jesus would have agreed with Abraham Lincoln who once said, God must love the common people. He made so many of them. And so if you are trying to impress Jesus, if you are trying to earn his favor with how great your life is or how spiritual you are or how much you do with the time that you're given or how great your family is, you haven't understood Jesus. You don't understand Jesus. Jesus. Jesus came into Galilee, and it's this beautiful little line tucked away in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. So let's start with verses 16 through 20, then we'll head back and pick up verse 14 through 15. How do we know who Jesus is? How do we develop a framework for the Christology that emerges in the Gospel of Mark? Remember I've said that the Gospel of Mark 
has two huge themes running throughout first uh, through the 16th chapter. Discipleship and Christology. And these are often intertwined. And so how do most Christians develop their Christology? Most Christians, I think, be, uh, be, uh, you know, develop their Christology looking at the titles that the Bible has for Jesus, right? Son of God, Messiah. They're there at the verse, first verse of the Gospel of Mark. Lamb of God, John chapter 1. Alpha and Omega in the book of Revelation. You have the, in the Gospels the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David. And so most Christians, I think, begin to develop their Christology by looking at all the titles of Jesus that run throughout the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But how do the Gospel writers develop their Christology? Yes, it is through these titles, but even a more robust way that the Gospel writers develop their Christology is what is called, and I love this term, it'll stay with me till my dying day, we're going to nerd out a little bit here on theology, right? Enacted Christology. I love this term. How does Mark, how do the gospel writers develop their Christology? It's through the narrative. It's through story. It's through telling the story of Jesus through his mighty deeds, his prophetic actions, and his authoritative words. Mark simply develops his Christology. How? As you see the life of Jesus and the story of Jesus being told, you are to ask again and again, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that is doing these amazing, amazing deeds and speaking these words? It's an enacted Christology. It's a narrative Christology that is way more robust, I think, than even the titles of Jesus. And so again, verse 16, you're expecting Jesus to start with a bang in his ministry, and he just calls these ordinary fishermen. And you want to ask, why do these disciples, how and why do they just drop everything? Why do these disciples drop their nets and immediately follow Jesus? What is Mark saying? Well, the story of Jesus is telling you something about who he is. This call narrative is telling you something about who Jesus is. And it's interesting that the other gospel writers give you a little bit of the context, right? About why these disciples drop everything. In the gospel of Luke, Simon begins following Jesus when? Do you remember the story? After an unsuccessful night of fishing. Jesus tells him to put his nets out one more time, and then there's this miraculous catch of fish. And at least for me, this would tend to explain in the Gospel of Luke why Simon decides to follow Jesus. In the Gospel of John, it is John the Baptist who has his own disciples who say, follow this guy. He is the Lamb of God. And so some of his own disciples begin to follow Jesus. But here in the Gospel of Mark, there are no clues, there's no psychological motivation, no context which explains the disciples' action. 
and to try to read between the lines of details from the other gospel writers is totally to miss Mark's point. Mark is making a point about who Jesus is, enacted Christology. He's trying to say this to you and to me. Jesus' word is the divine word of authority. Jesus calls as God calls. Jesus speaks as God speaks. And thus, there is this inner compulsion to obey the divine word. Follow me. And they immediately drop their nets. Jesus is calling as God calls. Think about the Old Testament. Calls. God calls Abraham, and what does he do? What crazy thing does he do? He sets out for a foreign country right away. God calls Moses in the burning bush, and he goes back to Egypt, even though it meant his life, because he just killed a man. People were looking for him. He was hiding in the wilderness. God calls him to go back to Egypt. God calls Jeremiah as a prophet to the nations, as a youth, and behold, he becomes a prophet. Remember Isaiah 55, 11? Isaiah says the, that God's word never comes back void, but always accomplishes its purpose. Psalm 33, 9 says, For God spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, and especially in Genesis, and how does Mark begin his gospel? The beginning of the gospel, which makes your mind go back to Genesis. And so even again and again in the Old Testament, there's a line that God repeats over and over. I will make you. I will make you. I will make you. I will make you into a great nation, Genesis 12. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, Genesis 17. I will make your offspring as a sand of the sea, Genesis 32. I will make you fruitful and multiply you, Leviticus 26. And a dozen more times all across the Old Testament. And so here Jesus comes into Galilee. What does he say? Follow me and I will make you. It's an echo of Yahweh's words from the Old Testament. I will make you fishers of men. And so we're to ask, and Mark wants you to ask, what is Mark saying here? That Jesus speaks as God speaks. That when you hear the voice of Jesus, you're hearing the voice of God. The enacted Christology here is, is that Jesus' words have an inner compulsion that calls for immediate obedience. Jesus speaks, follow me, immediate submission, immediate obedience. And you see this pattern continues throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus speaks a divine word of authority into our lives. Be quiet, come out of him. What happens? Impure spirits flee. Quiet. Be still, he says on the Sea of Galilee. And the wind stops. The sea becomes calm. Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, get up. And what happens? It's as if Yahweh is speaking 
in Jesus' voice, a dead girl is raised to life. Epaphra, be open. A deaf man's ears are open. He passes a, a fig tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And it withers right on the spot. And then when he's hanging on the cross, what does he do? He utters a loud cry on the cross. And the curtain in the temple and the city center all the way in Jerusalem is torn from top to bottom. What is all of this saying you're supposed to ask about Jesus? But Jesus issues a divine word of authority. The man called Jesus is speaking like God speaks. David Garland puts it like this. The power of the one who calls as God calls is the only explanation why these disciples respond immediately as they do. Instead of asking, why do the the disciples leave everything to follow him so abruptly, one should ask, who is this who generates such immediate obedience? Who is this man? Who is this man that calls and people just want to follow him like they've just been touched in in the deepest places of their soul? He is the one who speaks like Yahweh speaks, the divine word of authority. And so what are we to make of all this 2,000 years after this call to the first disciples? If you've been here at all the last couple of weeks, you might have noticed, Pastor, feels like you preached the same sermon twice. Two weeks ago, I was asking the pivotal question, what is your curiosity right now about Jesus? On a scale of 1 to 10, what is your curiosity right now about Jesus? And last week, I asked you a very similar question. I asked, is it time to return to your first love of Jesus? And why am I saying this over and over again? It's because we're not like the disciples. We don't hear in Jesus' words a divine word of authority that makes us follow everything and surrender everything right there on the spot. We don't follow Jesus immediately. We don't live lives often of gospel immediacy, which is the title of this sermon, gospel immediacy. Instead, what do we do? We often take our time. We forget this wonderful invitation. We, in the words of my father, we often dilly-dally. My dad was like six foot two. Anytime, as a kid, we were like, you know, dare we be a couple yards back, those long strides. He would tell us, don't dilly-dally, right? And so what do we do? We often dilly-dally. We often loiter at the words of Jesus. We said, I'll put following Jesus next week. And then next week becomes next month. And next month becomes the next season of life. Where is the gospel immediacy in our lives? Because slowly our curiosity about who Jesus is begins to wane. We need to be reintroduced to Jesus and begin to pray simply, Lord, show me Jesus. Oh Lord, again, I need Jesus. Show me Jesus. Are you praying that yet? Are you praying with us yet 
Lord, show me Jesus. I've heard some of you pray from the last sermon series, Oh, Lord, I give you everyone and everything. I've been so encouraged. I've been hearing some people pray like that. Lord, as I go through my day, I give you everyone and everything. This prayer for this sermon series is simply this. Lord, show me Jesus. Are you praying that yet? Do you, are you rekindling your passion for your first love? How are you doing that? Are you stoking your passion and your curiosity again by just reading through the Gospels? Lord, I'm going to attack all the four Gospels this year over and over again until you show me Jesus. <clears throat> so what does it mean for these disciples to immediately drop their nets and follow Jesus? To immediately leave their father right there in the boat with the hired hands. You see, we often approach Jesus like this. Jesus, bless my family. Jesus, bless my livelihood. The disciples follow Jesus immediately in precisely the other direction. They leave their family. And they leave their livelihood. Such is the radical call and how curious these early disciples are about Jesus. There is something that they've experienced, a divine call, that they just say, let me surrender everything, even my livelihood, even my family before Jesus. And so what do we notice about the lives of these, these disciples after they immediately follow Jesus? I love what Kent Hughes recognizes. The disciples, after meeting Jesus, Start living an immensely expanded life. Don't you love that phrase? Think about it. Think about the provincial lives of these disciples before they meet Jesus. Their lives were bound by Galilee, 50 miles by 25 miles. Their lives were bound by the Sea of Galilee, 14 by 7. In all likelihood, they would have never left Galilee their entire lives. They would have spent their lives on the deck of a boat, mending the nets, knowing the currents of the sea, interacting with probably just a few people in the marketplace, incredibly provincial from death, from birth to death. But what happens to these guys after they meet Jesus? They're taken throughout the entire known world at the time. John becomes a bishop in Ephesus in far away Turkey. Simon Peter, where does he die? Right at the heart of the Roman Empire in the great city of Rome. Andrew here gets called on this day. He goes as far as the borders of Russia with the gospel. And so they begin to lead an immensely expanded life because they immediately followed Jesus. They heard in Jesus a divine word of a sortie. And so they submitted and surrendered their lives right then and there. And yet, if we're honest, what do we do? We hold back from Jesus. We think that we're going to live our best lives on our own terms. But what actually happens is our lives become smaller and smaller and smaller the more we keep God at bay. So Kent Hughes says this, following Christ is the key to the expanding 
life. You want to live a big life? You want a life of adventure? You want an exciting life that's not boxed in, not parochial? Then follow Jesus immediately like these disciples. Mark Laberton says much the same thing. He writes this, When I was considering the possibility of embracing the Christian faith as a young college student, what I feared most was that it would make my life smaller rather than larger. Less love, less joy, less creativity, less wonder, less engagement. I had met enough Christians who were incarnational proofs of this. So when I finally came to faith in Christ as a college student, it was because I discovered that Jesus saves people from the very smallness that I feared. I saw that the very essence of the kingdom of God is a life bigger than I would ever find outside of it. And so these disciples, their hearts and their lives and their purposes were totally expanded to include the entire world. Why? Because they understood that the gospel of Jesus is inherently missional. They understood the gospel of Jesus to be intrinsically missional at its heart. It always sends you out to make you fishers of men. Do you know that Jesus is not a bait and switch religious racketeer? He doesn't hide the missional aspect of the gospel. But from the very start, he puts all the cards on the table. He says it from the very beginning. You are called to be fishers of men if you are a disciple of mine. And so the two questions at the heart of Christianity really should be this. What do you make of Jesus? And how are you fishing for men? You're either getting discipled or you're making disciples. That's what the 12 were all about. And so many in the church today are waiting, I think, for the next Billy Graham moment. It's like we're stuck in the 1950s, 1960s mentality when it comes to evangelism. We are hoping that all we got to do is bring people to the church. The evangelist preaches this amazing message. Masses of people come to Christ on the spot. And basically we are so content still of outsourcing the Great Commission to the evangelist. Of outsourcing the Great Commission to church events. And I'm going to ignore my own responsibility to evangelize and to share the gospel and disciple others and to make fishers of men and women. Who are you discipling right now? Either you are getting discipled or you're discipling others. Did you know that was my expectation of you? Let me say that very clearly. Either you are getting discipled or you're discipling others. But do you know that more than me is Jesus' expectation for you? Who are you reaching out to right now? Who are you praying that would come into the kingdom right now? Who are you discipling right now? Just a few years ago, I was convicted of this myself. One of my favorite quotes, I've shared it before, Gustavo Gutierrez, he says, you say you care about the poor, then tell me what are their names. If you can't name the poor people in your life, then how do you say that you care about the poor? The same holds true for discipleship. You say you care about discipleship, 
then tell me more. The gospel of Jesus is inherently, intrinsically missional. Follow me and I will make you divine, Yahweh speaking, fishers of men. Well, let's get back to verse 15. Let me just concentrate for the time being on the single phrase there. There's like three or four. Let me just go to one. God, uh, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What is the message of Jesus? What do the disciples understand about the message of Jesus that would have allowed them to drop their nets? They see in Jesus that there is a surprising availability of the kingdom of God. A surprising availability. The kingdom of God is at hand. Think about that. What if Christians, we really believed that the kingdom of God was available? Surprisingly intrusive, but totally available at the very same time. Wouldn't we pray differently? The kingdom of God is at hand. Wouldn't that drive us to pray, to be on our knees? The kingdom of God has been opened by Jesus. Wouldn't we evangelize differently with more confidence if we truly believe the kingdom of God has come in Jesus? God has thrown open heaven's doors. The kingdom is open. Wouldn't we give differently our finances, our time, our talents? The kingdom of God is right here. It's right at hand. Wouldn't we send out missionaries with more gusto and more enthusiasm? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's surprisingly available. Wouldn't we disciple our own kids in our homes and the kids in our church with more passion? Kid, I know that the kingdom of God is open for you in Jesus. And wouldn't we all be more curious and more passionate about who Jesus is? The kingdom of God surprisingly has been thrown open in his life. But only if you believe the kingdom of God is shut, you don't pray. You don't evangelize. You don't give. Because maybe in the back of your mind, you're still thinking, you know, it doesn't feel like the kingdom of God is at hand. It doesn't feel like the kingdom of God is open for me. Why should I even bother? Why should I bother to pray? Why should I bother to, to share the gospel? Why should I bother to disciple? It seems like the kingdom of God is always shut. And so the very first message of Jesus in the gospel of Mark, surprising availability, the kingdom of God is at hand. And sometimes even Christians, we have to be reminded again and again, the kingdom of God has come in your life. Do you recognize the surprising availability of the kingdom of God? If you truly believe the kingdom of God has come in Jesus, how will that affect the way you pray, the way you live the Christian life, the way you open your Bible, the way you share your faith, the way you disciple the children and the families and reach out to long-forgotten friends that you've crossed off, they're never going to come to the church, do you truly believe 
that Jesus brings a kingdom, you thrust it wide open. Let's pray. Father, we do believe again. Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help us in all the ways that we don't believe, we don't act, we don't speak. Like the kingdom of God is really open, Lord. The times we don't pray. The times we have our curiosity and our passion, it's, it's waned about who Jesus is. Lord, bring back that curiosity. Stir in our hearts anew, afresh. Lord, as we look at Jesus again and again through the gospel of Mark, Lord, bring us and break us, Lord, of the ways that we don't believe the kingdom of God is available. Lord, that you came, Jesus, to thrust it wide open, and we're so thankful. We're so close, quick to praise you, we are. We're going to sing another song. Lord, won't you stir in our hearts again? Lord, even now, Lord, we just have a posture of openness. Uh, Won't you put your palms up again? Like we did last week, just, Lord, show us Jesus, we pray.